Hello and welcome to The Conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Cameron Regal. And happy Talk Like a Pirate Day, Cameron. Oh, we already screwed it up. Yeah, hold on, hold on. I can I can make it right. R. Arr. I'm just a pirate that talks like this. <laughs> right. I mean, if you're a pirate, isn't every day talk like a pirate day? No, but it's talk like a pirate day. Our 10th talk like a pirate day episode here on The Conversation. And we are joined by a special guest who actually joined Rare Back in 2003, working on famously non-DKU game Cameo, Elements of Power, but also lending the quality assurance on beloved games that have been recognized as DKU for years, such as Saber Wolf for the Game Boy Advance, as well as Donkey Kong Country 2 for the Game Boy Advance, and Banjo Pilot for the Game Boy Advance. But boy... The most advanced game that he's worked on is Sea of Thieves, where he's one of the leading minds and heaviest hands in helping to shape the ongoing narratives and characters in the game. He's the author of Sea of Thieves, Athena's Fortune, and his new book, The Art of Battletoads, is out now. We're not going to talk about The Art of Battletoads, though, because his new book, Sea of Thieves, Heart of Fire, is out now. Please welcome back to the show, Chris Alcock. Oh, thank you, Heil. It's very nice to be back uh, here in uh, the conversation offices. I really love what you've done with all of the the big statues and and the spewing jets of flame and stuff. It's great. Yeah, no, that's just the the new line from First Four Figures, which is uh, where all of the Patreon money gets filtered through. I, uh, you know, I I say it's for the site, but it's just for my uh, addiction to... Very, very expensive collectibles. No, that's a lie. I'm joking, patrons. I'm joking. It all goes to the site. Before we begin, Chris, uh, two things. So there will be spoilers aplenty (gasps) for the Heart of Fire novel on this episode. So if you have not read it, or if you're in the process of reading it, or if you're planning to read it soon, hey, maybe you shouldn't listen to this interview. Maybe you should save this as delicious dessert. After the fact, the the uh, the fruity and refreshing sorbet that that comes after the main course. I think I can probably work my way through it. It's a video game novel. It's not going to be very complicated, is it? It you know it it, it may take you at least uh, until three thirty in the morning to finish reading. So you know don't don't go in there thinking you're just going to get through it in in a few hours you're, you're going to be up most of the night but i i do recommend you go back and listen to the literary analysis that cameron and i did of heart of fire from a week ago kind of sets the stage for what we're going to discuss on this episode so first off chris congrats on the slew of, of books on the bookstore shelves as of late how Thank does you. it how does it feel to finally have your second novel out it's been a bit of a weird one, to be honest, because uh, when I wrote Athena's Fortune, there was a long period uh, in between it being kind of uh, finished off to the printers and away, and 
getting it into people's hands. And this time around, that hasn't been the case because I've been on writing duties for other bits of Sea of Thebes, like uh, the monthly time-limited adventures and uh, press releases and all manner of other bits and bobs. I'm doing the Adventures Ahead articles on the website, things like that. So Sea of Thebes has never been out of my mind, uh, which has led to some really interesting dreams. And so it's actually gone by a lot more quickly uh, than the wait for Athena's fortune and that feeling of, is this real? Am I actually genuinely going to get a book or is this all some kind of elaborate prank? Uh, and I've, I've just been trolled. My life means nothing. <laughs> so so basically what you're saying is you're just numb to it at this point because you've never like stepped away and allowed yourself to smell the roses. And, and now it's just, oh, your book's out. It's, it's, it's time. Definitely not numb to it, uh, but uh, it has been a weird one because I don't need... I've, I've been getting like little drip feeds of affirmation and the fact that I can write and I use the word bade far too often and, and other little foibles um, coming through on a regular basis as people enjoy the adventures, they enjoy the articles, they've got kind of oversight on the comics and, and other things. So there's been less of the tension of, oh my god, we're heading up to release day, have I doomed the game have i have i killed this ip dead uh from the start with an atrocious novel uh but it's still fantastic and how could you not enjoy getting that amazing cover art by thomas mahon and just actually seeing it and just sort of snuggling it and sniffing it a bit with yeah the book smell absolutely gorgeous cover yeah i've got nine copies i can savor of it so it, it's it's wonderful um did you <sighs> I've got to ask this. This has nothing to do with your writing or or the actual content within a novel, which is, I think we can both agree, is fantastic. But absolutely, oh, does it bother you that it's a different size from the first novel? No, because I hold it slightly closer. <laughs> <laughs> because I know if I was a weirdo who was like, "Oh, finally, I'm going to have my second novel next to my first novel," and then they're completely different formats. I know it would keep me up at night with a, with a shawl pulled over my shoulders as I rock back and forth. But you seem like you're far more well adjusted than I am. At this point, seeing seeing like um, I don't think I was ever credited on the Art of Sea of Thieves, but those are my captions next to Athena's Fortune, next to Art of Borderlands, next to Heart of Fire. It's uh, yeah. If if there is one thing I am not building, it's some kind of stable way for a small child to get up onto a table and reach some dangerous implements like some scissors or uh scorpions that they shouldn't be touching they will fall over on this maladjusted stack of books wait, wait, what house is full of scorpions that we're permitting a small child into i i mean things have just gotten really weird here since brexit Oh, you know, I guess you were shipping the scorpions out to the continent, and, and now they just yeah. all have to stay there. I see. The EU has very strict scorpion regulations, and things have just, uh, yeah, started to wobble a bit a bit there. So. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm wondering, because as, as, I've never written a novel. I, I've only written for TV and a Donkey Kong website, so... I, I I don't know the visceral thrill of having your words in published printed form, but I I can imagine I I can put myself in that headspace. Was the process of writing this second novel 
more enjoyable than the first one or is it just kind of this rote thing you do now like time to crank out the next one uh is the magic gone is what i'm asking it's definitely not gone uh but it was definitely a very different experience because when i wrote athena's fortune the game wasn't out and there was no kind of real intention day one to have a huge amount of lore. So I wouldn't say I have a blank canvas, but um, I felt like I could do all of the heavy lifting, pretty much. There was a Tales book, obviously, which I needed to be mindful of, but in terms of characters, uh, how faithful are we to what's in-game versus what's uh, presented on the pages, how similarly do things like going to the Fairy of the Damned work, for example. Um, Second time around, there was so much expanded universe stuff, uh, both for me and and fantastic other authors, that I wanted to, needed to, uh, be mindful of, uh, that the challenges were not contradicting anything else, which I mostly did. I think people could argue they tripped me up in one or two places. Where? 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 I I challenged that. (laughs) There is a, I think, something to do with Plunder Outpost, and uh, it's described in the book as being uh, one of the more recent outposts, but there is some journal or other in-game um, that says that is actually not the case. So what I'm doing is I've just always got the game loaded, and I'm just camping that journal, and if anyone tries to read it, I shoot them. <laughs> I, I I will have to actually read the text of that journal, and then I will come back with an appropriate massaging people can't believe everything they read well pirates are by their very definition unreliable narrators uh so yeah it's uh, on the whole though yeah the the challenges this time around were a lot more um i am even though i've i've helped create a lot of it i am slotting into a machine that is actively working um and i need to be mindful not to get myself ground up in the gears of that uh but on the other hand uh, it was characters that in some cases I'd written for before. Um, as you said uh, in your your literary, literary analysis, which is as much fun to say as it is to listen to, um, <laughs> oh, no. Dinger and Fontaine are... Um, no, I mean that in a good way. Oh, It's a lot of fun. Try okay. it. Say it with me now. Literary analysis. I guess that kind of brings to mind a question I had. No, you mentioned... Um, having to not contradict things that are already in the game that's out there for people to play. Since you were writing the novel as not only was the game out, but new lore was constantly being introduced down the conveyor belt. Like, did you find yourself having to like go back and adjust elements of your own story constantly? Uh, in bits and pieces. Yes. Um, so I originally pitched uh, the second novel. Um, Rare came to me and said, we'd like to do a second novel. Can you you know, dream up a, a precy for it like you did for the first one and then come in and, and talk us through it? And I did. And I knew um, that Seabound Soul was about to launch. Heart of Fire was on the way. Um, but originally, my intention was that uh, the Prideful Dawn crew would basically go to this original incarnation of the reaper's bones that was uh, a lot bigger and more well established and had kind of crumbled uh in the wake of flameheart's defeat and and wanda was kind of putting that back together again and the more we got into the lore of the reapers and the servants of the flame and and so on it felt 
pretty obvious pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work. It was just like that had never happened before. It didn't fit with what was happening. Um, so I had to make some changes around that. But I think ultimately them going to Flameheart's actual uh, bastion that he has in that story uh, worked out better than going to the, the Reaper's hideout in its original form because what you don't want to do and what Mike I think is always very mindful of trying to impress upon anybody who kind of works for the game is you don't want to feel like the golden era of the Sea of Thebes was in the past and you're now living in some lesser version of it so it's always good to try and make sure that whatever you write about that did take place in the past uh, is as nothing compared to what's happening now you are living in the best time for the Sea of Thebes. I know the last time we had you on I, I compared what you did with Athena's Fortune to a reference point I have when it comes to expanded universes that are supposed to be, you know, canon with the the main uh, course, the main entree of, of the universe. In that case, Star Wars. And, and I was thinking about the Star Wars novels and how they fell into that trap in the old expanded universe of you you had all of these like golden ages of the jedi and the sith and all these cycles just kept repeating and and throughout the generations but they were like potentially more fantastic in the past and i just as you were saying that and you explained that i was thinking yeah that would have been terrible to have that like a, a reaper's hideout in the past because it would have just felt like we are just mimicking the ancestors of this story and it would have just been uh, it would just just been depressing. (laughs) You you did an episode about was it wise to get rid of Crocodile Isle? Would it have been worse if Crocodile Isle existed only in a book? Moreover, can you imagine if modern day Star Wars stuff was just repeating what the original trilogy had done? (laughs) We can go down that rabbit hole for sure. What, What I'm saying is it's a bad thing all around. And I'm glad that Mike and others stepped in and said, yeah, maybe we we don't want to do that. So bravo all around on keeping Sea of Thieves and the interplay and dialogue between the novels and comics and the game as adept and skilled and nimble as it is because i i never feel like i am experiencing something less than when i'm playing the game it's such a unusual feeling to look at an expanded multimedia expanded universe multimedia property and feel like every single one of these branches is equal and valid yes with, without detracting from the game itself which is what you know I'm sure Rare wants us to play above all. Athena's Fortune, it was being written as the game was being developed before release, but Mm -hmm. the structure served as both an origin for the structure of Sea of Thieves, as seen in the game, with, you know, Ramsey and his crew kind of establishing a foothold in the realm and getting everything started. And then Lorena was a view from a newcomer, not too dissimilar from what a player would experience when starting the game for themselves. So two similar paths, but with vastly different perspectives. For Heart of Fire, how did you stumble upon the idea of following the same dual narrative structure, but with a difference in philosophy instead? I I guess the philosophy here would be PDE versus PDP players or adventure seekers versus griefers, chaotic good versus chaotic evil. However you want to define this, where did you 
stumble upon that idea and say, yeah, that's the direction we need to take. It was one of the more interesting things watching Sea of Thieves grow since launch, and particularly thinking about it in the the wake of the emissary system is here now and we have these two sides, but also seeing the community uh, going in a really uh unexpected way i think like I, there were always going to be a few people who would want to kind of like i mean ever since launch i want the skeleton curse i want to be a skeleton i want to be jumping out and scaring people and the like but i think the <laughs> the the fervor with which people have kind of embraced hashtag flameheart did nothing wrong uh was really quite surprising and also just the mindset of watching people play the game like i'm not a reaper in my heart. I don't want to go and be aggressive unless somebody starts on me and really aggravates me, in which case I will kind of get some delight in either frustrating them, beating them in combat if I can, which I almost always can't, but just in some way outwitting them. Uh, that's fun. But the idea of just kind of sailing over and messing with someone's day is anathema to me. But there are plenty of people who very clearly do enjoy that and see it as being the the test of skill and uh kind of evolving dynamics and the interesting part that maybe the pve stuff doesn't provide and that includes some of the the big streamers so i really wanted to explore that as a very living very current thing that i don't think i could have possibly have written about uh for athena's fortune and that then led itself to being okay once again we've got to be the two crew structure we need to have these two people just like in the game looking at this situation from two very different perspectives and and what do we do with that uh, and also it's good because it means that i can cheat and keep the action levels up and keep cliffhangers going a little bit longer <laughs> well you said you're a reaper at heart but I, i'm not a reaper at heart. not a reaper at heart okay so i was gonna say knowing you to the extent that i do and how you do approach the game when you play it, because I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say I have sailed with you, as is Cameron, uh, in the mm -hmm. game, uh, as recently as an hour ago, honestly. How did you approach the novel, both as a player and as a one of the creative minds behind this world, getting into the headspace of the Prideful Dawn crew, who are ostensibly Reapers, did you find that a challenge to really have to put yourself into the headspace of, as you said, some of the more popular Sea of Thieves streamers out there? I think the challenge came less from why are bad people doing bad things in this fictional universe? Because there's that's a challenge in pretty much every story that you're telling. The bad guys never wake up and think, right, today I'm going to be evil. Um, unless you're not telling a very good story. They always have... <laughs> <laughs> their headspace that they are um the anti-hero they are spurned they are in some weird way justified for what they are doing um so in terms of actually setting the mindsets of the pride for dawn crew uh that was pretty straightforward the actual challenging part i think was trying to bring a bit more nuance to flame hearts and why people would want to follow him when you can say, oh, I don't like the trading companies uh, for reasons X, Y, and Z. I don't like pirates that give one another treasure or sit around drinking in a tavern because that's not how I want to play. But actually saying, no, that big shouty flaming head in the sky has really got some good things going on that I want to say. 
I yeah, I I, I think like the, I call a personality can you know spawn around anybody, no matter how inconceivable. And I think now more than ever, a big shouting, flaming head in the sky would be appealing to people. I, I could definitely see that. But- he tells it like it is. My supplies are dwindling. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I, I suppose I should ask then, as a writer, what surprised you the most about spending time with the prideful Don and, and the crew? Like did did you discover anything that you didn't anticipate when you were conceiving them? Ooh, that's a good question. I uh, I think how willing and how uh practical it was to have them bickering with each other and amongst themselves and there's a point where uh Karin um suggests that actually if Harkley's gone full zealot then maybe once they get the weapon they don't need him anymore um and expressing those kind of thoughts that you would never have had expressed on board the magpie's wing or even the uh, uh the unforgiven but it was just yeah getting getting those characters to breathe and getting them gradually realizing that they are in way over their heads and that maybe the thing that they had been forced into doing because let's face it for for certainly i know uh, harry and uh, karen were on their way to try and ally with captain flameheart and scraps and jewels are pretty much forced into their company or otherwise they're going to be lynched um but they soon realize that actually no they have made a really bad decision and they need to get out of it and that was fun and not something that i uh imagine doing i don't know necessarily how accurate that is to that part of the game um i i'm imagining that a lot of grade five reapers who are being pursued by an alliance of like three galleons who are out for blood even though they're not the reapers uh might feel that way from time to time though yeah yeah i think uh harry kind of fills fills that perspective uh, you can't have a story with a crew of four hartleys but having him i think kind of sets the stage for uh, 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 contrasting personalities on their crew but uh, uh going on the complete opposite end uh the crew of the morning star um the crew of the prideful dawn are entirely fresh faces the morning star we've seen these characters before they've been in the game quite a long time um they're they're like ultimate fates are even mapped out over the course of two of the the first tall tales in the game uh fate of the morning star and revenge of the morning star and you know we we meet these characters we see what they look like we get an idea of how old they are and their personalities <laughs> um especially Dinga, yeah so what was that like as a creative challenge kind of fleshing out this additional much more long-form narrative of these characters who were Pretty pretty rigidly defined, but that we didn't get a lot more story for. Honestly, that was easy because I'd already done it. Um, I fleshed those characters out for the, the two tool tales that they were in. And uh, they're a relatively simple dynamic. Like whenever I'm doing a crew, I try and come up with the A couple and the B couple um, who will play off of one another in interesting ways so uh in athena's fortune that's ramsey and mercia the skip the Mulder and the scully effectively um as the a couple with then uh shan and rathbone one being very impatient and sort of of the moment and one being very kind of zen and you know whatever happens happens 
uh, with the Morningstar crew. That's obviously uh, Dinger and Fontaine in opposition, and then Slate as the the consummate professional pirate, and Jill as the uh, ambitious but inexperienced one. Um, but in terms of actually fleshing them out, that was a big part of it, was that I created this crew for The Tall Tales, and I thought that Jill in particular... Uh, it's kind of weird now when you go back to her in 2022 and she's still just there going, yeah, I abandoned my crew and I feel really quite bad about it, uh, but I'm still building a ship in, in case Grey Marrow ever comes after me. Uh, and that's one of the challenges of doing a living game in that you can kind of either go, well, we killed Grey Marrow, or you can go, well, we've got these flames of fate, so we're about to go and uh, beat up the ghost of Grey Marrow. You can come along if you want. Uh, but just to get that element of I guess sympathy for Jill that I don't think because she never came out from behind the shipwright stall and Matul Tail and she never really kind of did anything I don't think uh, we really explored her decision in particular and the fun of the other characters as much as we could have done so that was a big reason to go and revisit them for me yeah i i again have to applaud you how much the simple fact that jill has such ties to being a shipwright actually factored into the entirety of the plot i thought that that was just very effective use of character in what would otherwise be a hindrance i thought made it one of the book's greatest strengths that was uh, a deliberate choice. I wanted, like, Lorena is the consummate pirate. It's just like she's naturally a pirate. It's in her DNA, but what she doesn't have is experience of the Sea of Thieves and how the trading companies interact, the fact that if you die, you'll come back on the Ferry of the Damned, uh, and all that sort of nuance of how the world works. So, um, as I think you you commented even, uh, Cameron, back when you did the Athena's Fortune analysis, that if Lorena doesn't know what's going on, she'll usually try and bluff her way out of it. Um, whereas Jill has been born and bred on the Sea of Thebes uh, from a young age, but she's not a pirate. She's watched pirates and she's kind of imagined the kind of things they might get up to, but she doesn't really understand it. So they're both good protagonists for, as entry-level characters from that point of view. And so that was why I picked let's give Jill the shipwright position, but also let's have her be a shipwright and not a tavern keeper or anything like that, because it does mean that she can be the Scotty. She can take these experienced pirates who've been at sea, but she can still contribute because she can improve the ship in ways they wouldn't think about. Well, the book opens up, surprisingly, with a prologue that focuses on Ramsey's crew from the first novel, more or less, uh, has features newcomer George, who we know as the future mysterious stranger in Sea of Thieves. And it's set during the time jump from Athena's fortune after the parlay. And the novel also ends with an appearance by Lorena establishing the Bilge Rats. So did you set out to always include the original cast in some small way? Or was that just more of a happy accident that you couldn't pass up? I don't think I ever originally intended to do it uh there came a point where i was looking at the chapter structure and i don't know how other people write books but certainly in my case every once i've gotten an idea of what i want the story as a whole to be i kind of divide up each chapter into a list of beats i want to hit in terms of what plot needs to be conveyed who needs to move 
in terms of emotions or motivation from one state to another. And the more I looked at it, the more it felt like starting with Jill uh, and her lying on top of a roof, attempting to ambush Slates as he as he comes out of a tavern. Um, it just wasn't going to be a strong enough emotional opening. It needed a bit like Athena's Fortune needed to start in the middle of the action and kind of set the stall of this is going to be uh, an, an action, not action heavy, but certainly it's going to be a pirate story. It's going to be at sea. There's going to be sea combat, all that kind of stuff. And so using Ramsey and the Pirate Lord's crew was something that just seemed to make a lot of sense, just because I knew there were fans of those characters now in the original, but also because it allowed us, well, allowed us, allowed me to... Um, get into the thick of it with a crew that knew what they were doing uh, and knew each other. Um, so there was a convenient narrative shorthand there. And what that chapter really does is give you a potted history. It's like the first three chapters of Athena's Fortune condensed down into what is the Sea of Thieves? Um, what are the rules of play here? Why are there only four people on this galley? And what is the Devil's Shroud? Uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, just setting the scene. Uh, the Lorina epilogue... Um, which if for those who have read the book and then forgotten how dare you but also uh it's it's a very small scene at the end that introduces duke uh and brings him into the bilgerats uh that was just a little i've got a thousand words left i think i can squeak this in and it will be fun and sweet <laughs> i do have to really quick applaud you for something incredibly stupid and I I, <laughs> I I always wanted to thank the person who introduced this to Sea of Thieves, or really any rare game that doesn't already have it established. So you mentioned the introduction to Jill when she's crouching on the Order of Souls uh, tent, um, wait, waiting to ambush Captain Slate. And there, mm -hmm. there's the bit where she's she's watching them from the tavern. She's waiting to ambush him when he goes out into the alleyway to urinate. And... I can't tell you how quickly that delighted me and really warmed me up to the book because my question has always been, where do the pirates relieve themselves? And now we have a canonical spot in the game where I can say this, this is where they urinate. <laughs> and that's going to stick with me every time I visit the outpost Every well, time you wipe your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I find it great. That is the level of world building rooting itself in the boring day to day details that I cannot get enough of. And you gave it to me. Thank you. Honestly, I, I almost can't take credit for that because that goes right back to Tim Stamper, Chris Stamper, Greg Mails, uh, everybody who has made rare what they are. It is a very rare thing, um, and it imbues all of Rare's games with such a sense of place when you think, where are the toilets? Um, <laughs> there's, it, it's 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 <laughs> such a simple thing, but there's an entire, at least there used to be an entire website devoted to kind of chronicling and ranking video game bathrooms. Yeah. And uh, it's like, from the minute you drop down... Uh, in, into the stalls in Goldeneye, or you can go into the uh, the bathroom in Grab by the Ghoulies. Uh, in fact, there are several ba different bathrooms throughout Ghoulhaven Hall, and uh, you just 
it's just a really simple, basic, natural thing. Everybody poops, as the saying goes. And if you remember to include it, then the odds are good that you're doing everything else that's right for setting the sense of place in. And I actually went around uh, looking at the tavern and trying to work out measuring dimensions, how many footsteps with the compass. Is there space to put a very small toilet behind the mysterious stranger? And that's the door he's leaning against. Is, Is there actually a toilet in there? Can I make that work? Uh, and ultimately, sadly, no. Uh, there are two doors at the rear of the tavern that just seem to both lean outside, and uh, I couldn't couldn't fit one in. So I thought, well, okay, what does a pirate do? They just go and uh, relieve themselves in an alleyway somewhere. True, but maybe there's a shanty you can play that will open up a secret <laughs> tunnel that takes you. <laughs> so I'm saying, if people are complaining there's no tier above pirate legend, this is this is what you can pitch. Well, I, I would I would say Once that you the, pass the two drink minimum. The only issue there is that we we now, as of uh, season seven, have stools in Sea of Thieves. So. Oh, true, <laughs> true. Anyway, I I do keep a, a list of bathrooms across the shared universe, and where I think there may be bathrooms. Like I I haven't worked out where Banjo and Kazooie's bathroom probably is. It's, it's through the 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 stove the the this hidden wall panel. Anyway, I'm just saying I can now add where Captain Eli Slate urinated to the list. And for that, I owe you a life debt. I always assumed that was why Banjo had hired that skip by the time of nuts and bolts, that uh, things were getting out of hand and he needed to, to do some serious behind the scenes fixes. Uh, But yeah, that was an interesting one because not everybody, and I guess, not everybody will guess why it was being obliquely referred to as Tanner's Alley uh, in the story, but that is a weird historical detail, but a true one, um, that uh, urine is really good for tanning leather and getting it uh, nice and firm for making clothing. And so uh, if you saved your urine back in the olden days, uh, tanners would come around and uh, collect it and actually uh, pay you for it. There's some new lore for your black dog jacket, Heil. <laughs> I can just picture now Jeff doing his little doggy dance over me. All right. Um, <laughs> um, maybe we should move on. Yeah. Uh, so, like we've established, we got some surprise appearances from returning characters from the first novel. But we also get some, uh, well, returning faces from elsewhere in the wider Sea of Thieves narrative, including Merrick, who is... Uh, it, we're seeing kind of seconds before disaster, um, <laughs> setting up his encounter with the hungering one. But we also see um, briefly Lissetti and DeMarco, um, who have both appeared in the game, but also have their origins in the Sea of Thieves comics. And uh, we we know we get the origins of the Sea Dog Tavern as well. Mm-hmm. So. It, it kind of seems like he wanted to include these um, characters from the wider expanded universe, some of which weren't originally under your pen. Was this kind of a thing where you, you knew from the start you wanted to work these these characters in, or did the story just kind of progress naturally in a way where it made sense to bring them into the fold? With Lissetti and DeMarco in particular, I hadn't originally... Uh, or when I was planning, I, I knew I wanted a skeleton fort. Um 
And this is like a, a larger decision of when you're sitting down to plot the book, it's like, okay, there are some things in the game that canonically didn't happen until years later. Um, so if I'm going to include a Megalodon, if I'm going to include a skeleton force, if I'm going to include skeleton ships, which I didn't, um, at least not in the kind of the wonder sense, they're all sort of flame hearts aligned. Um, then you're going to need to make a, a damn good reason as to why these things are, are showing up early. But if you don't include them, then it's probably going to feel a bit less Sea of Thievesy than it otherwise might. But then there are things like, um, I wanted to include firebombs, I wanted to include rowboats. If you were going to be pernickety, you would say, well, okay, rowboats didn't appear in the Sea of Thieves until after launch, so why are there ten years in the past? Why are there firebombs? Um, and so on and so forth. So it's that stuff can be hand-waved. I think I, I made some sort of comment to, oh yeah, this is one of the older galleons, but Slate has had it upgraded so it could take a rowboat. And the, the logic there is just, oh no, there always were rowboats, but your pirate didn't get lucky and so didn't encounter any until a particular time in uh, in the game's launch cycle. Um, with Lucetti and DeMarco, then it came... Me, I wanted to think about where is this skeleton for? Why isn't it here anymore? Uh, and that was a, another thing. Whenever I try and put down one of these murals or uh, locations, you'll notice every, pretty much everything uh, that is not in the game right now that is in the book gets destroyed very deliberately. Like, you can't go there anymore. And so I was thinking, okay, well, where does this fort that doesn't exist anymore live in this time? Um, I know I want to make a sailing it really, really hard, so it should be somewhere up high. What do we have that's up high? Well, we've got the Sea Dog Tavern. Can I wrangle that in? Uh, and then from there, it just made sense that when I wanted uh, some pirates to kind of rock up and help, uh, honestly, because that chapter was about a thousand words short, uh, I <laughs> got Lucetti and DeMarco. Uh, they just seemed like the natural fit. And I'm really enjoying... Um, Obviously, most people haven't gotten to experience the vinyl booklet because it's uh, a, a very limited run thing. But there are some stories in there as well. Things like um, Captain Adelheid from Athena's Fortune gets to meet, um, firstly, Warden Chi, and then secondly, Mel from the Sea of Thieves comics. I'm really starting to enjoy going a little bit MCU and kind of bringing those characters together. I really enjoyed the twerking scene. Elements of Athena's fortune eventually found their way into the game itself. So the, the expanded universe does kind of weave its way back into the core experience. And that's up to and including the character of Lorena, who is now outside of every tavern in the game. And that was delightful until she made me eat 80 pounds of meat in the event that I think back on the least fondly. But will you be pushing for characters or themes from Heart of Fire to be woven back in, or is there already a plan? That's a, a tricky one, because I would never want to introduce a character just because they exist. There needs to be a time and a place for them, and I think it's different now when we have so many beloved characters who... Uh, already exist within the game who were born within the game um 
that people want to see again that you've really got to justify going ah no but actually forget bringing back Flameheart forget what the Dark Brethren are up to this time you're going to go and experience a three part arc uh, all about recovering Tom Toggs's lost fishing rod from the Sea of the Damned um, you've really got to justify it so pushing no but being mindful of elements and things yes and in fact I've already cheekily been doing that um a great example there being in Adventure 5, The Forsaken Hunter, uh, players will encounter a memory of uh, Amaranta using an open box of wondrous secrets to communicate with uh, the rest of her cohorts who are in the Sea of the Damned. And I wrote that knowing that using them to eavesdrop and to communicate was just one of the ways that Flameheart had used boxes of wondrous secrets during Heart of Fire. To address a, a big glowing skeletal elephant in the room, um, Heart of Fire is still very much, in in a sense, a novel about Flameheart in that he's the catalyst for absolutely everything that happens in the story, and just the threat of his existence informs absolutely everything the rest of the cast is doing. We We do get to spend time with the man, and enough backstory to paint a complete and satisfying picture of him as a person, i.e. he was always a pretty rotten bastard even before his flesh fell off. Um, but uh, this tale isn't like a, isn't like a long-form biography of him or a long-form tragic fall from grace, more about how the wider world is reacting to him at the individual level and character sort of character these character studies of how they're reacting to his presence almost like this ominous and inevitable force of nature with these pretty clear-cut motives so i guess my ultimate question is um what sort of led to this being the route the most direct route so far through which uh, flameheart's character was explored so i knew from the outset that I didn't want to do what I suspect certain content creators would have wanted me to do and write 20 chapters of uh, this is why Flameheart is secretly a great guy and an amazing dad and you should all be on his side and let's go and sink people. Um, Firstly, because I'd already kind of done that with Rathbone becoming the gold hoarder. You've the previous novel is a character, not particularly sympathetic character, granted, but you can at least understand his irritation when he came out here to get rich and Ramsay's messing around with Merfolk and excluding him and, and stuff. Um, but that fall from Grace into becoming a, a mindless monster and uh, an obsessed skeleton lord was something that I'd done. Uh, and then the other thing that I kept coming back to was Flameheart is effectively our Darth Vader, and there is a reason why the Darth Vader corridor scene in Rogue One is so effective, and it's that the threat of Vader has been le- lingering over the rest of the movie, and yet he only shows up at the end and, and kicks ass. And it would not have had that same impact if you'd watched him get up in his little oxygen bubble at the start of the movie, put his mask on, go around, choke a few people make some puns about choking people, fly all the way in his tired vans <laughs> to go to where they were. And it, it's, you've got to use him sparingly um, because he's not a Palpatine. You can actually get away, I think, with having Palpatine being a much more 
permanent presence in the prequel trilogy, and he's probably one of the best bits of the prequel trilogy, honestly, and being duplicitous and stuff, because he's a chimera, uh, he can afford to interact with different groups of people and put his different faces on. Flameheart isn't that and shouldn't be that. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to use him sparingly, and so that is why, ultimately, his big action scene, his big fight scene, occurs about two-thirds of the way through the book when he's unstoppably coming up, up that beach uh, and only Slate is there to fight him, and Slate's picking off his minions and Flameheart keeps coming and Slate is backing up and running away and getting more ammo and taking more out and Flameheart keeps coming and he's chasing him and he's chasing him and just feeling kind of unstoppable like that. That to me is Flameheart's action scene and if you used him any more than that, if you tried to get too deeply into his head or throw too many other random obstacles in his way, it would probably not even be that faithful to him because he is a force of nature at this point. I genuinely love the route that was taken with him and I do think it preserves the the menace of Flameheart. In particular, that scene is one of my favorites in the book because you it thoroughly paints the picture. There There is no scenario in this in which Slate is going to be able to stop Flameheart. He can only delay the inevitable. Yeah, and it's a bit hand wavy. He's like, well, why, why does Slate simply not shoot him? And it's like, it won't do any good. We've all seen, we've fought Skeleton Lords at this point, and that is another kind of useful baseline that if you're invested in the game, you know that Slate can't just run up to Flameheart and chop his arms off. That's not how Skeleton Lords work. Um, and so part of the power is the bit that you don't show. I also appreciated how the interlude was was written almost in a different style than the rest of the book. The the interlude we had for Flameheart's get backstory, as it were, it was almost written as if it was hearsay or legend rather than strict narrative fact, which which also I think in some sense preserved Flameheart and his mystique for his actual appearance later in the novel. That interlude is one of the few times I self-centered myself and I went back and forth on, is this too brutal? Is this too bloody uh, for what the game is? There was an ear involved uh, and eventually I, I pulled back and was like, no, that's just too grim. This It's a darker book all up uh, because I think the subject matter is, is darker and needs to be treated more seriously because they are facing, as far as they're concerned, a potential end of a sea of thieves, whereas in both chapters of... Athena's uh, Fortune, it's like, it's a new life and it's a new hope for both Ramsey and for Lorena. Um, but there are some lines that you don't want to cross in terms of tone, and that was one of them, I think. Well, Cameron and I both shared our favorite character on the literary analysis for Heart of Fire, and we will be getting into that character in just a bit. But I have to ask you, as the author, as the creator and shepherd for this cast... Who stuck with you the longest? Uh, who who was your favorite child of the Heart of Fire cast? They all have to stick with me because uh, I need to write them all and I need to write them well. But I think the character who flew most easily out of my fingers into the keyboard and into the Word document was uh, Hector the Hoarder. Uh, <laughs> just that's that's a weird decision, but he was just so. He's so simply antagonistic, and he comes in in the middle of these 
two groups of brawling characters who have these grand ideological debates and they're casting aspersions back and forth about you want this and no you want that across the campfire hector doesn't want any of that he knows exactly who he is he delights in knowing that he's a pernickety bitter little man and he just the glee with which he is able to dismantle Slate when Slate comes like, I'd like you to stop bullying this innocent person, please. <laughs> you can't make me. Um, he was really fun. And I very much enjoyed getting to choke him with the skeleton man. <laughs> Not what I was expecting, but I'm sure our favorite character wasn't who you were expecting either. So, No, indeed. Before we talk about said favorite character, I, I do want to play a game with you once again um, because I found this insightful the last time we did it and I would like to extend the same courtesy to this cast of characters. I want you to cast your cast of characters in the movie or the streaming series for Heart of Fire. What actors would you use to fill the roles? And... Since the looks and personalities and voices of the Morningstar crew were all established long ago in the game, let's start with the Prideful Dawn. And if you don't have answers for this, that's fine, but I know sometimes when you write characters, you you sometimes cast them in your mind's eye as, as kind of a template to sort of move things along. So do you have any idea who would play Scraps, Jules, Karen, or Harry Hartley? This is uh, incredibly uh, tormenting because I do, when I uh, kind of come up with the character bios to send to the publisher, I al- almost always kind of look for some visual reference, which requires me to scour IMDb. And I came across a whole bunch of slightly less uh, famous, not that the other actors were particularly famous to begin with, but just like actors that like even I hadn't really known before. Um, I was just kind of looking at them and going, yeah, that's that kind of visual appearance. And it is purely visual um, rather than casting anything. I can probably talk about character archetypes easily enough in that um, Harry Harkley is a Klingon. <laughs> I, struggled the, I struggled the most with Harry to begin with in that I was kind of vacillating backwards and forwards in the first drafts and e- even uh, Michael, the publisher, uh, the publisher's editor, I should say Titan's editor, who did a wonderful job, noticed that he was kind of being a little bit uh, back and forth in terms of, is he old? Is he young? Is he calling people, like he he called Scraps boy at one point. He's like, well, he's not that much older than Scraps, is he? So is he just incredibly arrogant? What is this person? And so he was the character that when it suddenly clicked in my head, no, he's a Klingon, even before um, getting transfixed by... Uh, the lure of Flayheart and the ritual that turns him into an Ashen Lord and, and kind of becoming enthralled, he would have been that kind of, ah, you have no honor, we shall drink wine together and talk about our conquests kind of uh, pirate. And so, yeah, I guess any of the the actors who would have kind of uh, made good pirates over the years, J.G. Hertzler as Chancellor Martak is a bit old, but you know, uh, th- those kinds of actors uh, for Harry. Karin, I always had in my mind, uh, it's a Germanic name, um, and this is another example of, of how my uh, decision-making and how I approach things have changed since Athena's Fortune. In Athena's Fortune, I 
went really super forensic on all of the names of the characters, like Lorena with one N, um, which I guess would be Lorena, uh, would be or is Seagull in Latin. Um, so I went down this whole rabbit hole of picking really deep and meaningful names. And by the time I got to Heart of Fire, um, I was watching a particular Minecraft YouTuber and he mentioned his wife, Karen. And I was like, oh, it's a really interesting pronunciation of that name. I'll use that. Oh. Um, well, we've, so... we've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time. So apologies. She's not a Karen. No, she's a Karen. Um, but she, I always modeled on, in terms of her personality and her stoicism, on Rosa Diaz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh. Played by the wonderful Stephanie Beatriz. Um, usually sort of just like a, a really sort of wound ball of tension, but when she snaps you, you're going to know about it. Uh, Scraps is probably the hardest one to define for me. Um, yeah, I, I would probably have to give scraps a do over and come back to you and you know, ask me that again when whenever we're interviewing novel three okay um and then jules was i just got in my head that, that kind of that slightly uh people who initially appear to be very vacuous and then surprise because they they're, they're quite quiet or because they're not carrying themselves in a particularly forward way um and then they suddenly do or say something that will surprise you um so kind of a oh, what's a good example something like a maybe like an ensign tilly from star trek discovery god we're going down a nerd rabbit hole here aren't we <laughs> um just someone who they're very confident but they they lack self-worth in in every aspect and it makes them very mousy very mumbly very look at the floor and then again until the moment is needed when they need to step up and actually they realize I can actually do this. Um, and that was definitely the uh, the, the ta- take I wanted to have with Jules, the person that thinks, oh, I can never be good at CFs. I can never be good at PvP. Um, I'm never going to be able to actually stand against that crew of Reapers. I've always got to run. I've always got to hide. Um, that was, yeah, getting getting the confidence to actually even um, be a little bit bolder at CFs, which is a journey that we all went on, right? Like. To begin with, you're there, you're on your sleep, you are terrified of at any moment 12 ships are going to sail over the horizon and they're all out for your blood. And then as you get more experience, it's like, no, it's fine, we've got some treasure, it'll still be there when we come back. And, you know, I've looked at the map, there's nothing there, we're all good. Uh, and just gradually growing that confidence. Jules is the, despite being very capable and very experienced, as certainly as a sharpshooter, she's like that, that pirate that lacks the confidence, even more so than Jill. I don't think Jill ever questions herself as, and that she can do this as much as Jill's does. Can I just say, uh, before we move on to the Morningstar, I, you're, you're going to laugh. I was picturing Harry Harkley as a beastly version of Ed Sheeran. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't know what to say to that, except that is the first thing that popped in my head and I could not shake the imagery. Um, the Morning Star crew, as we said, they they have kind of appearances and looks already established, so this might be a little bit trickier of a question. But Jill Dinger, Fontaine, and Captain Slate, would would you have any conceptions of who you would cast in those roles? Slate, if you had asked me, uh, unfortunately, it's not no longer possible, which is uh, one of the many sad bits of 2022. But if you had asked me earlier, Slate would have been David Warner, I think. Oh yeah. Oh. 
Um, he'd have needed to grow a moustache, but I'm sure he, he could have managed that. Um, mm. Dinga. It is, it is a trick, a genuinely a trickier proposition because as you say that you've got the accents, you know what they look like. You are really sort of casting from the pool of TV actors. Um, we, they can just be entirely, they can be entirely CG characters. We can just, <laughs> we can just hire oh, well, animators. Can, oh, and Chris Pratt for everybody. <laughs> right. Chris Pratt for all four of them, honestly. Yeah. When he's done being Mario. Yeah. 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 That's that's our easy out there. Yeah, I think it's going to have to be an easy out just because um, my my brain is going to sit here spinning in in wheels. Otherwise, what I really should have done was anticipated that you were going to ask me this question and come prepared. I'll ask you it every time, so you you can yeah. rest assured it's coming for the third novel. <laughs> for book for book three, you could just come up with completely facetious answers and see if Kyle <laughs> will call you out on it. <laughs> For for book three, uh, the two crews are going to be just uh, crewed. Into, the two crews are going to be uh, actors I know in their entirety. So it can be um, Ray Park and Peter Capaldi, and uh, let's two put, of them are Justin uh, Roiland, so that Hyle yeah. has to read them in his voice. <laughs> uh, oh. Who else? Do I want? Let's, let's put Ben Browder from Farscape in there. He can be there. Why not? Uh, Teal. Yeah. Let's this, get this Teal. This is going to be so from, much easier now. Teal from SG. Yes, Christopher Judge. He'll do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we need a pirate in the lore who has a little kangaroo pouch and and carries around uh, a a little one. <laughs> but one day that pirate's going to grow up and it's going to cutlass his way out from the inside, <laughs> and that is that is the tragedy of that character. <laughs> Oh, uh, that that that's just the most horrifying curse in the game. The curse of eventual child betrayal. <laughs> Coming to Sea of Thieves in 2029. So, speaking of curses, Edmund kind of ended up being the breakaway character for both of us because, um, what can I say? We both just are total suckers for silly things and love friendly skeletons. But, um, and... As we said, this is a spoiler podcast episode. It's uh, later revealed that he was uh, Flameheart's Duke, and uh, he later bodily reincarnates without any memories as the Duke, um, the bilge rat we would come to meet in the game, who uh, previously hung out all the taverns and would uh, later join the Dark Brethren. So how much of this... Shocking backstory for a very well-established character had been baked in from the start, and uh, how much of it was entirely an invention for the novel? It was entirely invented for the novel. Um, I <gasps> took the pricey to Mike and Adam at Rare, and I took them through it, and I was extremely kind of... Uh, uncertain as to what Mike would make of taking one of these very beloved characters um, who obviously was going to be going into very interesting places in the future and putting him in even more interesting places in the past. And I think Mike's only comment was if Flameheart considers himself to be a king and he has his Ashen Lords, that's why he's called Duke. He's Flameheart's Duke. Uh, and that just made all the sense in the world. Uh, so yeah, it was 
it was very much uh, a big fun who is this character going to be uh, they need to be someone it, it initially I, I don't think i thought of them as being anything other than one of flameheart's own crew uh which was seated in right back in seabound soul with betrayed by my own kind i'd left that line in there mm. um as let's have flameheart say that he was going to be uh destroyed by other skeletons in some way that was always my intention for that but i hadn't ever figured out how or who or why um but yeah just having it be duke just made so much sense because this character does come out of nowhere in the game and he has these strange and somewhat uh almost suspicious motivations and that the things he was sending pirates to do oh yeah you should just go and take these rag and bone crates to the reaper's hideout what could happen and the fact that he disappeared and then came back and wasn't telling you where he'd been and all those things like that you could always have this uh propensity to be a little bit dubious and a little bit is he just incompetent is he actively malign is he bumbling and we love him for it and just giving him that extra depth um, and seeding him in the world was just too tempting an opportunity to pass up. It could have been an original character, uh, but I don't think that would have had as much impact as guy you've never met before defeats big bad. It needed to be someone who had been in plain sight all along, I think. Yeah, I think it's satisfying to know that it's sort of, even though it's an invention for the novel, it came about through sort of like connecting all these disparate parts together almost like like a jigsaw puzzle with one missing piece and Duke fit in perfectly. Yeah, if Duke had never been so beloved and hadn't had all of these um, sort of fan theories and fan art and all, all that kind of stuff around him, it, it probably wouldn't have been Duke, but it made it a lot more fitting that it was somebody we knew. And yeah, as I said, Duke was in the right place at the right time um, and about to be deposed by Lorena, so... Now, here's a question you may not be able to answer, because I, I don't know what's coming down the the line in the game, but do you take Duke's uh, odd behavior, his shifting motivations and alliances, could you ascribe any of that to potentially any subconscious memories of his time as Edmund the Skeleton creeping back into his brain? Even even if he's not fully aware of it, do, or could you not even speak to his character motivations at this time? Memories, I don't know. I would I wouldn't like to set the stall that one way or another. But in terms of personality and who he is at a core level, I think Flameheart. Uh, and in fact, I, I deliberately wrote the the paragraph where Flameheart basically says, "You cannot be like me." you will always have a need to belong and you will do whatever is, is necessary to be accepted and to get that acceptance and be part of a group. And that was very much alluding to if Duke feels so alone and cast out by the Bildrats and without a purpose in the world, will he fall in with the Dark Brethren? Um, and I wanted to actually kind of make it quite clear that potentially, yeah, um, Duke does have that capacity in him that he would rather be on the side that sets the world on fire as long as he's got friends and it means that there's a place for him when everything is kind of in ruins, potentially. 
<laughs> that wacky skeleton. Love him. <laughs> now, we we are in the cooldown period of the podcast where we're just talking about all of the best characters. So what was the thought process behind the snake, Chomps? How did you settle on an animal sidekick that would tag along with the Morningstar crew with a very familiar name, let me add? And how did you decide he would essentially be the Chekhov's gun aboard the ship? Chomps was just fun. Uh, And I liked the idea of... Uh, initially they were just going to have this snake and it would be comic relief like every four or five chapters i wanted to sort of see can you can we make the reader forget about this snake and then they'll go down into the the hold for some thing or other and jumps will show up again and so he was just there to be there and, and be funny initially uh you are probably thinking of chomps uh as a name that one might ascribe to uh, a shark for example um or a plant. Or a plant. <laughs> um, where we were getting, uh, or where, where I got jumps from, was from when uh, we would have lunchtime rounds of Mario Kart Double Dash. And uh, that gave rise to Chompy, the Chain Chomp power-up from Mario Kart Double Dash. Uh, we we had a lot of unique parlance uh, that came around. While we were playing Double Dash, there was another group uh, in another part of Ray who were playing Mario Kart Wii, and then gradually, as players kind of want, as as we wanted sort of different experiences and let's get some courses that we're not used to and that kind of thing, those two groups began to intermingle and cross over. So um, yeah, we gave them Chompy, and they gave us Leader Bomb for the Blue Spiny Show. It's fine. There, there's several different characters <laughs> across Rare with the name Baza, and uh, we've made it work in our headcanon, so it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I did want to thank you, though, for clarifying and ma- just, just making it clear in the story that Chomps did indeed make it to safety. I can't tell you how many times where uh, a story, a narrative has no regard for the well-being of an animal after the fact, and you're left worrying about its fate. And and we don't have to do that with Chomps. As far as we know, Chomps could still be out there. Chomps could still be out there. Alternatively, you could have just randomly caught Chomps and sold him to the Merchant Alliance, or your pirate ancestor, rather. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, we will never know. But, yeah, it was Chomps did nothing to harm anybody other than killing Eli Slate, which, I guess, is extremely harming someone. But, you know, he... He Slate, wanted it. To yeah, Slate knew it was going to happen. He, he, yeah, he made it happen. Um, so, yeah, it was important that Chomps get away. Uh, in terms of why he used the Chekhov's gun and when I decided I wanted to make him a Chekhov's gun, I'd originally got the scene where Slate leads Flameheart back down into the ancient treasure vault and sort of seals him in, seals them in together um, to give the Morning Star time to get away. Um, that Slate was then just going to kind of goad Flameheart into killing him and Flameheart would uh, succumb to his own rage and sort of be able to unable to stop himself. And I thought, oh no, actually, that's pretty weak uh, because it's not a very good tactic on the part of Slate that you've just got to hope you can make someone, uh, you know, give you death by Skeleton Lord. And it's not very good for Flameheart because, yes, we have established that he's very angry and he's very warlike but if he can be goaded into doing something that's against his uh 
best course of action. He, you know, it's against his, his his long-term prospects so easily. It makes him look weak and stupid. And actually, Flameheart, as single-minded and unrepentant as he is, he's not stupid. He has outwitted pirates in pretty much every tall tale since uh, Stitcher Jim convinced Pendragon that making uh, his uh, orchestrating his release was a good thing to do. So Chomps was just an obvious get out for that. It's like, okay, Flameheart's going to be smart. He's not going to kill him. He's just going to want to hurt Slate and make Slate suffer. But Slate needs a get out clause. He needs the, the pill under the tongue. We've got Chomps. Uh, so yeah, sometimes one of the best things about writing is when you've got two different story problems and you can bring them together to make a solution. Well, I, I, I thought it was expertly handled and the snake made it out safely, so yes. I, I was pleased all around. Uh, you, you're playing fire with fire getting high old to think about combining two things. <laughs> Tom Soggs, a pocket watch. Uh, uh, no, I, I want to discuss hapless fishermen, <laughs> Tom Toggs. Now, despite only appearing for a brief passage, Tom Toggs and his grisly fate is one of the more memorable characters and sequences in the novel. Is this because Tom Toggs is so obviously destined to become a cherished anthropomorphic stopwatch named T.T.? I think that Tom Toggs's plight is something that if you enjoy fishing in the game, and I know you do, Hyle, mm-hmm. uh, and I know I mm-hmm. do, we have all experienced, and in fact, I directly experienced it. Um, I was fishing, and I kept, it was it was a relatively valuable fish. It wasn't like a, a moon wrecker or anything that you would howl to the heavens over losing, but it was certainly a, a fish that I didn't want to lose. And I fished this fish up. I was minding my business. I was on a sea post. I let my ship sail on its merry way, and I got it onto a line. I turned around to hand it in. And there was somebody stood behind me watching me fish with the blunderbuss. And only when I turned around, that was when they shot me. And I was so (laughs) distraught by the cruelty and uh, utter utter pain of that moment that I realized this has to be captured. That there are forces of pure malice and spite in the sea of thebes that will deny me my my umbra splash tail or whatever it was um as to whether or not tom togs is destined to become an anthropomorphic stopwatch uh i would say that uh in the original plan i had for him in a piece of media that uh never got to come to light so i kind of rescued him from that because i like the character and i like my name um, Tom Toggs was due to be taking part in something very akin to the race of Thebes um, and was unable uh, to partake uh, and, and had to kind of bow out. I'm not saying that, that was because any, of anything that a big <sighs> wizard pig had done to him, uh, but Tom, well, Tom Toggs well, no, but... does enjoy a good race. And I think if you were to sort of discuss how Harry... Uh, treats him and and what he does to tom togs when it comes to looking at how you live your pirate life you could say no 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 wrong way oh 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 well i was gonna ask who would play tt in the sea of thieves movie but i i'm just too 
too worked up now to even <laughs> ask a follow-up question. Oh, my heart is all it's a Jack flutter. That is, I mean, I don't even have to think about that one. Some things are just woke. He's Bowser, Some things though. Are just woke. He, he can that, do two things, why shouldn't he? Uh, I can't. I can't picture that. But uh, okay, all right. You know what? You know what? I'm going to take my win, just as I did with the the recent Nintendo Direct. I'm going to take my wins where I can get them and run away before I can be spoiled. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to say yes, but no. We're going to end it here because I got something resembling the answer that I wanted. So interview over we're done <laughs> thank you so much for being here chris uh sea of thieves heart of fire is available now online and in finer bookstores everywhere as is art of battletoads but we didn't talk about art of battletoads today did we no we, no we didn't i i'm sorry but heart of fire get it now now available from titan books chris congratulations thank again thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure, as always, and I will uh, see you as and when I've, uh, yeah, retconned some kind of uh, criminal badger into the law. This has been a File 2 production. Oh, no!